This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. John chapter 20, starting in verse 19 through verse 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, were for the fear of Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness of any, it is withheld. Now Thomas was one of the twelve, called a twin. Was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the marks of the nails, place my fingers into the marks of the nails and my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing him, you may have life in his name. Let's pray one more time before we get started this morning. Father God, um, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for your church. We want to thank you for your people. And as we open up your word this morning, I just pray that you open our minds, open our hearts, help us to see the truth that's before us and what you want us to do with it. God, I pray that this is clear and I pray that this is on our, our hearts through your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Stephen Ellison. I am a pastoral fellow here, and I am blessed to be able to bring the message for you this morning. So uh, I hope you all had a wonderful Easter. It was wonderful to see all of you that I got to see last week. Um, And I don't know how it is for you guys, but for me, sometimes the week after Easter can be a little strange. We've taken this time and this season to to remember Christ and his death and his resurrection. So for me, I'm usually like trying to take up the few days and keep on my mind that I'm supposed to be thinking about Jesus, right? So on Friday, I'm trying to remind myself that this is the day that that Jesus died for us. This needs to be on my mind. I need to be solemn. I, I need to be thinking about this. And then Saturday comes around, and as you go about your lazy Saturday, you just kind of get hit with the realization, oh, yeah, it's, it's Easter weekend. I need to be thinking about this. And then maybe on Sunday you, you go, you hear a beautiful sermon about the resurrection, you, you celebrate, you praise, you glorify God with other Christians, you go and you, you enjoy time with your families. And for me, sometime around Sunday evening or Monday morning, it's kind of this weird thought of, okay, 
I've, I've taken time to remember the resurrection. I've, I've taken this season to do what I was supposed to do. And now it's over. Now what? And the answer doesn't sound right. Like it's not, well, I guess we move on until next year, right? Like that doesn't sound right. But at the same time, that's almost, that's what we kind of do by default, I think. Maybe Easter's weird for you, not because of that. Maybe you come in here with a totally different background and Easter's weird for you because maybe you grew up in a house that wasn't really religious, but Easter was the day that you went to church, right? That's, that's just what you did. The one day of year that you, you went, you did that. And so maybe that's what you did this year. And maybe in God's providence, he's brought you back here this morning and, and maybe he's got your heart curious or he's got you thinking or he's got you moving. Maybe you've come from all different backgrounds. Maybe Easter wasn't weird for you at all. I don't know. But I think there is this kind of pressing question of, now that Easter's over, now that the season of remembrance and reflection is past, what do we do with the lessons? What do we do with the stories? What do we do with what God's put on our hearts? What do we do with the resurrection? We're going to go through a text today that kind of shows us what we're supposed to do with that, and it's going to be pretty simple. Whether you're a Christian, whether you've been a believer for years, whether you're not someone that's a believer, what we're supposed to do with this is, is we're supposed to believe. So we're going to be in John chapter 20. From that passage that we read here earlier today, as you flip there, if you're not already there, let me give you a little bit of background about where we are in the Gospel of John. We've been going through the book of Matthew in here on most Sundays. We've taken a little bit of break from that, and we're going to focus this morning just on what we're supposed to do with the resurrection since we're just past the season. So we're in John today, and in John's Gospel, what he's covered for us so far is we've seen Jesus' trial, we've seen his death, we've seen his resurrection. John gives us the story of Mary Magdalene going to the tomb and finding the tomb empty. We see stories stories about the, some of the disciples going to the tomb and finding the empty tomb. And we even see that Jesus has, has sh- uh, shown himself to Mary Magdalene and that she's gone back and told the disciples this. Where we pick up today is that the disciples are gathered in a room on the evening of this very first Easter, right? This is hours after Jesus' uh, tomb is found empty. This is the weekend that Jesus has been killed, murdered brutally. And here we find his disciples probably confused, uh, they've, they've seen the empty tomb. Some of them, they've received reports about Jesus being resurrected. They don't know what to think about this. I'm sure they're tired, and I'm sure they're stressed. This being just less than 72 hours after they saw Jesus brutally executed. Uh, and in the midst of this, in the midst of this turmoil and this mix of emotion, Jesus is going to come and stand among them, and he's going to act in some really magnificent ways. So what we're going to see as we move through the text here today is we're going to see three ways that the resurrected Jesus chases down sinners with the truth of the gospel and brings them to himself. And what we're going to see at the end of this, at the end of the story, is that the author John is, is going to turn his attention from telling the story and he's going to turn it to us. He's going to tell us what we're supposed to do with it. And again, I don't want to give away the ending, but what we're supposed to do with it is we're simply supposed to believe. So with that being said, let's get into the passage. John 19 Start, or 20, John 20, starting with verse 19, says this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. The very first thing that we're going to see in this text is that Jesus chases down sinners with proof of the resurrection. And that proof's going to be in his own body. So Jesus comes and, and he, he, he stands among these disciples who, again, are, are stressed. Uh, I'm sure they're tired. I'm sure they're confused. But not only that, they're, they're afraid. They're afraid because, 
again, they saw Jesus executed in a horrible, brutal way. They saw him executed by the Jewish leaders who, who hated Jesus for selfish reasons, for, for all of this, 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 this passion of anger they had built up for him over the, over the years of his ministry. But not only that, the Jewish leaders were praised for doing this, right? That the crowds are, are out there screaming before Pilate to, to crucify him. And if you're a disciple and you see that the people who were in charge not only desperately wanted Jesus dead, but they're being praised by the masses for doing so, you're going to be afraid because, you know, what, what would keep them from coming after you next, right? Why would they stop there? So the disciples are gathered in this room, afraid, confused, tired, stressed, and Jesus stands among them. And it doesn't say that he, he came through the door. It just says that he's, he's simply there, right? Miraculously, Jesus is, is standing among them. And if you're a disciple and you're not expecting somebody, you know, to be alive after being dead standing in front of you, and you're going to be asking yourself, you know, what, am, I, am I hallucinating? Am I seeing a vision? Am I, is, am I seeing a spirit? What's going on here? Jesus kind of dispels that, right? He, he stands among them, and he speaks to them, and he says, peace be with you. Think about that. Jesus' first words to them are, peace be with you. The last time most of these disciples saw Jesus, they were in the middle of like running away from him. They're in the middle of fleeing. Jesus was being arrested and they were booking it anywhere else they could go. They were abandoning Jesus. And Jesus' first words that he says to them after he rises from the dead is he stands among them and he says, peace be with you. Already bringing the good news, already bringing that gospel, already bringing that grace, Jesus stands among them and speaks to them. And not only does he speak to them, He's showing them proof that it really is him, right? He's showing them the marks in his hands from where he was nailed to the cross. He's showing them the hole in his side from where he was stabbed with a spear, proving his death. Jesus stands among them, speaking to them, showing them the marks of his body, proving that this is really him. This is really the man that was nailed to the cross that died for their sins. This is the resurrected Lord. He brings them proof. We actually see that a lot. Jesus goes to like great lengths to show his proof that he actually rose from the dead. Last week, as Pastor Chris brought us our message from 1 Corinthians, we talked about how Jesus appeared to more than 500 people, right? 500 eyewitnesses saw Jesus after his resurrection. Uh, in that, that message, Pastor Chris brought us um, a little excerpt from a book from Timothy Keller where it talks about all these different uh, people and different times that Jesus appeared to them. Not only that... Have you ever thought about the fact that, that 2,000 years later, we're sitting here reading from an eyewitness account, somebody that stood there and is now giving us an orderly, detailed account of what happened in these moments, who Jesus appeared to, what he said, how he spoke, when he did it. And we have multiple of these accounts. We have accounts about what Jesus did that day after from eyewitnesses, from people who collected accounts from eyewitnesses. We have all of these different things. We have 2,000 years of the church continuing with the story with their details without missing a beat. We have manuscripts scripts that go back centuries, we today have all of these details about what happened 2,000 years ago, and that is absolutely incredible. We still have this proof. Stories don't just happen to make their way through history without being left off somewhere. They don't, they don't just happen to get passed down through generations without us losing something. For us to have this story in so much detail from so many accounts after 2,000 years from something that happened on the other side of the world is absolutely incredible. That doesn't just happen. Let me, let me give you an example of this. I'm pretty sure my grandfather was struck by lightning. I'm like 90% sure. 
I'm actually pretty sure he was struck by lightning multiple times. But I can't guarantee it because I have heard this story throughout my life so many times. Actually, that's not even fair. I've never heard a story. I have heard random details from relatives over the course of my life about my grandfather and lightning. I've heard that he was struck once. I've heard that he was struck twice. I've heard the number three thrown out there. I've heard that it happened on the golf course. I've heard that it knocked his shoes off. I have heard so many random details about my grandfather and lightning, but I've never heard the whole story. And I think it's because nobody knows the whole story anymore. I've heard relatives debate it. My parents don't know. I called my grandmother this week and I said, Mama, was or was not my grandfather struck by lightning? If he was, how many times? And what happened to his shoes? And she told me that he was struck at least one time on the golf course and it knocked the putter out of his hand. He was electrocuted another time. He was in a field a third time with somebody else who got struck by lightning. And he may have been struck one more time. She thinks that he was, but she's not sure. The the details get a little bit fuzzy after that. And she doesn't know what happened to his shoes. (laughs) She told me that people undoubtedly weren't as worried about lightning back then, which I didn't know was a generational concern. But... But the point of me telling you this is, within the last 50 or 60 years, my own grandfather was struck by lightning at least once, maybe twice, but nobody knows for sure. Like, that is probably one of the most amazing stories that somebody could pass on for the rest of their life and tell you. And nobody in my family of 40 that I know of can tell me what happened to that. It's been lost within one generation, within half a century. One of the greatest stories that you think you could tell for the rest of your life has been lost to the people that were closest to him. We don't know. Because stories get lost, right? Even the best stories get lost throughout history. Details get lost. People forget. Our minds are forgetful. Most of us don't know the names of our great-great-grandparents because we lose these things over time. But somehow, on the other side of the world, 2,000 years later, we have multiple accounts, multiple details, and all these accounts from eyewitnesses about what happened to Jesus so that in a very real way, I personally know and have more proof that Jesus rose from the grave than I do if my own grandfather was struck by lightning. That's incredible. That's an amazing thing. And it's because Jesus has gone out of his way to present us with this proof of what happened. He presented it to his disciples. He presented it to others so that it could be passed down to us. And in God's providence, we still have it. And that's amazing. Jesus has gone out of his way to present us with proof that lasts so that we still have it. Jesus chases down sinners with proof of his resurrection so that we can know and so that we can believe. Secondly, we see that Jesus chases down sinners by sending his followers to do the chasing. So let's read here in verse 21, picking back up where we left off. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so am I sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven of them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So in this passage, there's a lot that's a little bit confusing there. We're going to work through that. But I want us to see what's going on here at first, right? So Jesus has appeared before the disciples. He's presented proof of who he is. And it says they're glad. They believed. They leaned into this. And as soon as they believed, Jesus turns and he sends them on mission. Jesus sends them out. Jesus tells us throughout the gospel many times that that he came uh, to do the will of the Father. He came to open the eyes of the blind. He came to help the needy. He came to pronounce good news to the poor in spirit. He came to bring a message of salvation to the world. 
And he lived it out when he died on the cross to pay for the sins of our, our life that we could never pay on our own. He, he lived it out as he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death once and for all. Jesus lived out this mission that the Father sent him on. And now, once his disciples have believed, he turns to them and says, I'm now sending you on the very same mission that the Father sent me on. And that's to pronounce the good news of salvation to the world. That those who believe in my name, those who believe in my death, those who believe in my resurrection will have life and will have life eternal because their debt is paid. They are no longer held down by sin and death. They are free in me. You are now to be sent on the same mission that the Father sent me on. And that's to pronounce salvation to the world. Now, in this passage, in this little section, there, there is a lot that's, that's confusing. So um, it's talking about Jesus breathing on them, them receiving the Holy Spirit. It talks about them being able to forgive sins, withhold sins. What, what does all this mean? I think it's all tied together by this context of them being sent together on a mission, right? They are sent out on his mission. So when it talks about Jesus breathing on them, telling them to receive the Holy Spirit, uh, this idea of breath and spirit and, and, and wind. These are things that are really connected throughout Scripture a lot. If you go back to the Old Testament and you think about the story of Elijah in the Valley of Dry Bones, we see it there. If we go to Acts chapter 2 and we see the day of Pentecost, we see it there. Which also brings up another question, right? So if Jesus is telling them to receive the Holy Spirit now, that could be in a little bit of conflict with what we think of when we think of the New Testament receiving the Holy Spirit. What's the most famous story that we see of people in the New Testament receiving the Holy Spirit. Uh, we see that next to the day of Pentecost. This is the day where, um, this is weeks after Jesus' resurrection, and the Holy Spirit descends on God's church in a magnificent way. It's a major turning point in the New Testament, a major turning point in the history of the church. It is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. These spectacular gifts are bestowed on the church. The Holy Spirit comes on them as a people, and it's a huge deal. Uh, so we can start to say, well... If we see that in Acts chapter 2, which is weeks later, and Jesus is telling them to receive the Holy Spirit now, is there some kind of conflict there? What's going on there? And I don't think there's any kind of conflict. It's, there's a few different ways we could interpret that. Some people say that when Jesus is saying this right now, he's, he's kind of giving them a symbolic giving of the Holy Spirit. He's telling them about what will come during Pentecost. Other people say that um, Jesus is telling them to receive the Holy Spirit, but he's not commanding it right for this instant, that this will come later. Personally, I think the best way to take this passage is to say that when Jesus tells the disciples to receive the Holy Spirit, that they actually do receive the Holy Spirit, though it's not going to be in the same way that they receive it in Pentecost. Pentecost is this huge deal where these, the fulfillment of these prophecies about God's people as a whole receiving his Holy Spirit uh, do so in, in, in a totally new and utter way. But that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit, like, comes into existence at Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit is a member of the Godhead. He, is a, he has been existent from eternity past, always there. Uh, and, and we see him working in, in different ways in the Old Testament. I think the best way to understand this is to see that Jesus is sending his followers out on a mission to the world. In some way, he's giving them the enablement to do that through his Spirit. And that brings us to this part about them forgiving sins, releasing people from their sins. What is that? I, I think, again, he's sending them on a mission to pronounce salvation to the world through what Jesus has done. I think it'd be a very strange thing to find that Jesus would be saying, I'm sending you to the world to tell them that they can be saved, that they can be forgiven of their sins if they believe in me. And by the way, if you don't want to give that to them, you can kind of hold that back. Like, I don't think that's really what's going on there. I think this is all tied back to this idea that he's sending his disciples on a mission to bring salvation to the, the message of salvation to the ends of the earth. He's giving them the enablement to do that through his spirit. 
And he's telling them to, to, to proclaim this message that those who believe in my name, you were to proclaim that they are forgiven from their sins. That they are released, that they are given life, that they are, are with me in spirit. But the flip side of that is they're to proclaim that those who do not believe are not forgiven. They're to pronounce that their sins are not taken away, that they are still under the condemnation and the righteous judgment of God. Their sins aren't taken away. It's not supposed to be some separate thing here. The idea is that for those who believe in the name of Christ, those who accept this message of salvation, there is a pronouncement over them. You are forgiven. For those who don't, for those who don't believe, those who don't accept this message, those who don't live by it, there, there is a pronouncement over them as well, and it's that you are not. Jesus is sending his followers on this mission to take the message of salvation to the ends of the earth so they can know how they can receive life. Because as we stand right now, we are not, we are not promised life just because we exist on this earth. We're not promised eternal life. We're not promised to heaven just because we haven't done something absolutely horrible. Our, our state that we stand in now is, is removed from God. We're under our sins. We're, we're not forgiven as we stand just because we think we're okay people there's a message that must be accepted, and it's a message of belief in the name of Christ to be forgiven for sins based on what he's done for us on the cross. And when we believe in Christ, we're sent on that message to go to others. So Jesus chases down sinners by sending his followers to do the chasing too. But thirdly, Jesus chases down sinners by doing the chasing himself. So let's look back at the story in verse 24. Um, and this is going to be a pretty familiar story to a lot of you guys. We're going to get into the story of Doubting Thomas. And I just, think it's, I just think it is so beautiful. Verse 24 says this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So here we're introduced to Thomas. All we know that is Thomas wasn't present with the other ten when Jesus first appeared. We don't know where he was. Uh, one thing that we do know about Thomas from where he's appeared elsewhere in John's gospel is that Thomas is a very loyal follower of Jesus. And he's kind of a downer. Um, we see him in the story of Lazarus, right? Jesus is, is saying that he's going to travel to go see Lazarus because his friend Lazarus has fallen sick and is, is about to die. Uh, his disciples do not want him to go on this trip because his disciples know that where he's going, there are people there that, that want him dead. Uh, and so Jesus tells them that they must go, and, and Thomas's parting words were, all right, let's go with him so that we can die too, right? That's, uh, that's kind of Thomas. We don't, I mean, maybe that's not fair. Maybe that's not his whole personality, but that's all that we get to see of him, and it's in line of what we kind of see here, right? So here's Thomas, who, who for some reason wasn't present, and these other 10 men... So the 12 minus Judas and minus Thomas at this point. The other 10 disciples have seen the most amazing, the most life-changing, the most groundbreaking, the most world-shattering thing they will ever see in their lives. They've seen Jesus Christ raised from the dead who's given them a mission that will change their lives forevermore. Can you imagine the emotion and, 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 and the shock and the awe and the excitement in the disciples' eyes and they run up to Thomas and they tell him everything they've just seen? And Thomas says, no, no, I'm not, I'm not buying it. Thomas is told this by 10 men who he's done ministry with for years at this point, right? He's told by 10 men who probably, surely he trusts. 
And Thomas essentially looks at them and, and says, no. No, the word of these ten men has essentially trashed me. The most groundbreaking, most earth-shattering, most amazing thing these men had ever seen, they go and in unison tell him about this. And not only does Thomas not believe, Thomas refuses to believe. Thomas goes so far as to put himself in the place of saying, no, if God wants me to believe, he's going to have to prove it himself. God places, or Thomas places himself as the judge over the proof of whether he has enough to believe or not. That's harsh. That's, that is tough. And Thomas does this for a week. It says in verse 26 that for eight days Thomas did this. Can you imagine the other ten disciples just like sitting around talking about everything they've seen and as excited as they are and, and talking about what this means for the rest of their life and what they're supposed to do next and, and confusion and excitement and all these kind of things. And there's Thomas sitting in the corner. Nope, didn't happen. Thomas refuses to believe until verse 26. We see this. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. So here we are eight days later. We're a week later, if you're including both days, right? So a week later, everything's set up exactly as it was before. The disciples are inside. The doors are locked. This time Thomas is with them, though. And just like before, Jesus appears, just appears inside the room miraculously, stands before them, says what he says before. He says, peace be with you. But this time, he turns directly to Thomas, walks up to him and says, Thomas, run your test. You said you wanted to put your hand in my side? Go for it. Put your hand in my side. You said you wanted to place your hand in my hand to see the marks? Go for it. See the proof. Look and believe. So notice that Jesus not only miraculously appears in the room, Jesus not only presents his body as proof to Thomas, not only goes out of his way to show him all these things, but Jesus shows that he knows exactly what Thomas has been saying this whole time. Even though he was never there, right? Even though Jesus wasn't present as Thomas was doing this, Jesus miraculously knows everything that Thomas has been saying. And he goes out of his way to show him even more. And that's all it takes to convince Thomas. Thomas doesn't, we don't have any sign that Thomas actually runs his test. He, he sees, and when he sees he believes. Not only does Thomas believe, not only does Thomas make this big 180, this huge turn in his belief, not only does he go from refusing to believe, putting himself in the, in the place of, of judging what proof God has already presented for him, Thomas turns all the way around, believes immediately, and when he believes, things begin to become clear for Thomas. When Thomas believes, it seems like all of these things that he's seen Jesus do in the past, everything that we've seen in these gospel stories, all of this starts to becoming together in Thomas's brain. And all of a sudden, now Thomas not only sees that Jesus is alive, not only does Thomas see that Jesus has risen from the grave, now, now he sees Jesus for who Jesus is. He sees Jesus as God. 
He says, my Lord and my God. He sees his divinity. This confession is, is, is incredibly important. Thomas goes from utter disbelief in the possibility of a resurrection to now believing in the resurrection. But beyond that, believing that Jesus is who he says he is. He is God in the flesh. That's what God does when he changes our hearts and he makes us believe. That's the amazing turnaround that God does in us. And when Thomas announces this, Jesus affirms it, right? And he says, you've now believed because you've seen. Good. He says, blessed are those who believe without seeing. Think about that for a minute. Jesus just told Thomas that it is possible to believe without seeing everything that Thomas just saw. That you can believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can believe that he is who he says he is based on eyewitness accounts. You can believe based on the evidence. You can believe based on this proof of courtroom-ready evidence that we already have presented to us. You can believe based on that. But Jesus, despite that, still went out of his way to show Thomas all of this proof. Jesus didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that for Thomas. He was under no obligation to do that. Think about this. Jesus lived out his ministry in front of Thomas. Jesus didn't have to to, to do that. He didn't have to to show everything to Thomas that he did. He didn't have to go to the cross for Thomas. He didn't have to die for Thomas. He didn't have to come to those that Thomas trusted and show proof. He surely didn't have to further prove himself to a hard-headed disciple who refused all the evidence that was presented to him. Jesus lived out his ministry in front of Thomas. He told the disciples exactly what happened to them in Jerusalem. He even told them that he would die and rise again. Then Jesus went to the cross and died for Thomas. He, he rose again for Thomas. He appeared to the disciples that Thomas trusted. And Thomas still has the audacity to say, no, that's not enough for me. And despite that, Jesus goes out of his way to appear before Thomas and even to allow Thomas to run his own tests. Why would somebody who just suffered for you, died for you, rose again for you, presented evidence to you, look at your disbelief, And then decide to go even further and show you more. Why would he do this for Thomas? Jesus always searches the whole house to find the lost coin. Jesus always takes the long trip to find the lost sheep. Jesus promises to never lose any that the Father has given him. In John 6, 37-39, Jesus says this, All that the Father has given to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
Jesus pours out his grace before us by dying on the cross for our sins, to pay the punishment that we deserve, to, to, to meet the wrath of God that, that we should meet. And he rises again and he offers all this proof and, 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 and still in the hardness of our hearts we refuse to believe. But his love and his grace for us is so much that he still comes after us. That, that he still desires, desires us, that he still wants us, that he, he still wants our lives, that he still wants us in a relationship with him, that he still wants us to know him, that he goes out of his way even more so that we would believe Jesus chases us down himself. And so Jesus says this to Thomas. Jesus looks at Thomas and says, you've, you've seen and you've believed good, but blessed are those who, who, who believe without seeing. Jesus looks at Thomas, and now he's starting to turn his attention away from Thomas. He's, he, he says, that it's good that you've believed, but he turns his attention to those who believe, not because they've seen everything firsthand, not because they've, they've seen the risen Jesus, not because they've put his hands, their hands in his side, not because they, they've actually witnessed these things with their own eyes, but he turns his attention to those who will, be, who will have to believe based on the evidence that's been presented through these eyewitnesses to those who will have to believe based on the stories that they've heard, to those who will have to believe based on the evidence that's been passed down for 2,000 years. Jesus turns his attention from Thomas in this moment, and he turns it to us. And when he turns it to us, when Jesus turns that attention to us, the author of, of, of this, this story, John, also turns his attention to us. And he tells us why he's written this. And he tells us why these stories have been preserved. And he tells us why we're able to hear this today. And he, tells us, he says it's, it's so that we will believe. Look at verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. You ever seen one of those cheesy movies where, like, the narrator's telling the story throughout the whole movie, and at the very end, right, like, the narrator, like, swivels around in a chair and, like, brings it all home and tells you what all's going on, right? In a much less cheesy way, John's kind of doing this here, right? John has told us all of these stories. He's given us all these true, firsthand accounts of what Jesus has done. But John tells us that he's actually excluded some stories, that the stories that John has chosen, the true stories that John has chosen to include in, in this gospel, he's included for a purpose. He's got a reason. And that reason is so that you, you would hear these stories about who Jesus is, what he's done, that you would take that to heart, and that you would believe. He's written this so that you so that you would know. He's written this for you, person who's continued in disbelief despite the fact that your family or friends or other people around you have passionately believed. He's written this for you, person who said that you would never stoop to believing something without any kind of proof, some, something so ridiculous as miracles. He's written this for you, person who said that you haven't had the same experiences with things that are religious as others, so you just can't quite understand it. He's written it for you, person who said that you didn't grow up in a religious household, so maybe this is just something for other people, but not for you. He's written this so that you would believe person who has been a Christian for years and years and years, and maybe you struggle with doubt every once in a while. He's written this for you, person who's believed for a long time and just needs to be encouraged with a reminder of what Christ has done every single day. He's written this for you, person who thinks that maybe God's grace was enough for them on the cross, but since that time you've rejected him and turned away from him so many times that surely God couldn't still want you or want to forgive you or want to love you or want to reach out to you. All of these things have been written down. These stories have been preserved for you. 
He's written this so that you may have life in his name. There's a lot of misconceptions in our culture about heaven. Heaven, to most people, seems to be a place that you go unless you've done something really bad to work yourself out of it. Everybody's relatives are always in heaven when you talk to them. Every celebrity that passes away is doing whatever made them famous today in heaven. Our culture has this idea of eternal life, which simply has no basis, has no foundation, has no authority. It's something that we've made up. It's something that we've come up with. Maybe it's, it's something that, that we didn't want to argue with somebody about because we don't want to comfort them while they're mourning and, and while they, they try to understand things. But the truth of the matter is that Scripture is very explicit about what heaven is and who is for. Heaven is the place where we go once we've taken on what Christ has given us in His perfect life. Once we believe in Him and our sins are forgiven and we gain His righteousness, it's for those who believe in His name are given this free gift of grace through God so that we are one with God. We have the Holy Spirit so that we're being saved sanctified throughout the rest of our life, glorified at the end of it, so we will spend eternity with our God. Heaven is for those who believe. If you stand here today without belief, you do not stand here with life. And that, I don't, oh, I, I, I really hope, I pray that that doesn't sound judgmental or it's harsh. It's not the point. The, the reason why that this is told to you is not so that it can be harsh or judgmental to tell you that it's wrong. The, the point of this is the reality of your situation, if you are without belief in Jesus Christ, is that you're on your way to hell. That, that's, that's not judgmental. It's, it's a warning. That's the truth of what the Bible presents us. That's what God himself has told us. That's where you're going. Please, God, for your own sake, please heed the warnings. Understand your situation. See where you stand. See that that our sin is is an affront to God, that we deserve his judgment, but that God loved us so much that he sent his only son so that whoever believes in him can have eternal life because he takes on our sin for us. God, please believe. Maybe you're here today and you think you believe. Maybe you think you believe because you walked an aisle when you were six or or you said you believed after some church service and you've gone five, 10, 20 years and you have had no difference in your life and there is no fruit of your belief and there is no evidence to show that there's been change here. The Bible tells us that real belief changes us, that the Holy Spirit enters us and once the Holy Spirit enters us, we are different. I tell you, and I hope I tell you with compassion, that that if if you think you believe and it's never changed your life, you're lying to yourself. Real belief produces followers, followers who live on mission, followers who go out to proclaim that good news to others, followers who are different. So if you're here today and, and you believe... This is still for you. This isn't a message just to people who don't know him. You're commanded to continue in belief. To strive after further belief. To to grow in your belief. To know him more. To follow him more. To believe in it more. To let it set in your heart more. This isn't just an Easter thing. This is something that's supposed to live in your heart every single day to be with you forever. What Christ did in his death and his resurrection defines you from this point. Not just till the end of your life. But forever.
But if you don't believe, I really do beg you to stop and look and to look at the grace that's offered to you, to look at the evidence that's been presented, the story, the, the, the facts, the accounts that have been preserved for thousands of years that don't just happen by accident. I, look at you to, I ask you to look at the rewards and the consequences to know that you could spend an eternity with a God that loves you, that's offered His Son to, to take away your sin, to bring you life, to offer you hope, to do away with your shame, to give you a hope for eternity. I hope you know that, that time really is short and that it's urgent. That you don't know what the rest of your, your life will be. You don't know how long it will be. But even if you did, even if you knew that you were going to live another 50 years after today, why why would you ever want to go 50 more years knowing that there's truth out there that you don't have, hope that you haven't attained, joy that you haven't gained, love that's not in you, hope that's not there for you? Why would you want to go 50 more years without a purpose that's ordained by God, without a love from the one that sent his son to save you, without the death of the Savior reigning over you? Why would you want to do that? We're not going to do an altar call today or anything like that. Um, but I am asking you to do something. I'm asking you simply to believe. And not just this kind of half-hearted belief where you go home today and you think that it's all okay because you kind of believed and you go and you get some decent sleep out of it because you think you're fine because, you know, you think it's true. I ask you not to rest here today until you leave knowing that you have a belief that changes lives. Talk to a pastor. Talk to Adam or Chris or Jason. Talk, talk, talk to somebody here that, that you know is a believer that brought you. Come and ask about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to pronounce that, that belief to the world. Ask about baptism. Ask about what it means to be a, a member of his church. Ask about what it means to be going on that mission. But don't go home today. Don't go home today thinking you might believe. These were written so that you would believe. And that by believing you would have eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, we, um, Father God, we thank you. We thank you for what your son has done for us on the cross. And God, it is with a heavy heart that we think about the reality of, of everything that's before us, Father, that, that every single one of us deserves your judgment, Father, because we are sinners. We've failed. We've fallen before you. Every one of us are less perfect than you, and we deserve your judgment. But God loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us, to take our punishment, to offer us grace, who continues to chase us down despite the fact that we reject it openly. God, what kind of God are you? God, thank you. Thank you for your love that was poured out for us on the cross. Thank you for your power that was displayed in the resurrection. And God, we pray that your spirit lives in us and makes us believe and believe even more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.